Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. My name is Ryan Nicodemus, and together we're the Minimalists. We're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. T.K. Coleman's Have here. Have a holly jolly Christmas. Oh, <laughs> happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Ryan was going around saying happy Kwanzaa today for some reason. Whatever <laughs> you celebrate, I've got something for you. It's a mistletoe alert. Oh, no. Come here, Nicodemus. I would hate it if that was over <laughs> you and I, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the gift I have for Ryan today. Uh, Big thanks to Malabama for bringing in this. I don't think it's technically mistletoe, so I guess you don't have to kiss me. Uh, Those are the rules. It looks like holly. Like, uh... Um, yeah, looks like the plant Holly. Anyway. I don't even know her. <laughs> <laughs> Holly who? We have a special gift for our listeners today. We decided to close our studio for the holidays, so we're recording this in advance. But the gift we're going to give you is the gift of community. Yeah. We've done this for the last uh, four months or so. We called them Sunday Symposiums. If you're listening to the free public minimal edition of episode 372. You're going to hear about a quarter of that event. It's standalone. You'll get a ton of value from it. We answer a bunch of really thoughtful and important questions from folks who are seeking some answers and going through some difficult times. Mm. We see that with community, though. That's what community does. And TK pointed this out to me early on. There's something that we achieve through these events that we've been doing. We call them Sunday Symposiums. We're gathering Sundays at noon in Los Angeles with a small crowd of about 200 people. And we're just experiencing our time together. And each event is appreciably different. But the thing that's the same is a lot of suffering tends to come to the surface. Mm. Don't you think, TK? Yeah, that's right, man. I mean, there's no substitute for like real-time contact, connection, and conversation. It's sort of like having a meeting that we schedule versus just being in the same place and talking about what comes up. And when you do that with people, there are so many interesting things that come up, things that are worth celebrating, things that are worth analyzing, things that are worth comforting one another about. And uh, it's just such a powerful experience, man. If you haven't had a chance to do this when we come back, Mm. you got to join us. You really do. Yeah, Yeah, it's been been awesome. It's funny you bring up the suffering. Um, Well, not funny, ha-ha. But it just hit me, like we're all suffering in some way. Mm. And what's nice about these events is that, um, man, I almost look at it as like a celebration of the suffering. Yes. And uh, a lot of people, yeah, they think they're alone in it. And I think, you know, the people who come to these events, they realize that they're not alone in the suffering. We're all suffering in some way, shape or form. And we're just trying to soothe that suffering a little bit. Mm. If you want to hear the whole event, you can find it over on Patreon. Just click the link in the description or visit patreon.com slash The Minimalist. It's a couple hours long. And by the way, we release all of our live events over on Patreon as well for our true fans here. But this one's going out to all of our Patreon subscribers. It's a big thank you. It's our Christmas gift to you. Shout out to our entire team, Jordan, for filming it. We have Professor Sean, who did the audio, Podcast Sean, and post-production Peter, who took care of it, made it sound and look beautiful for you. Danny, of course, put together all the TikToks, and Mallory did everything else. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Thank you, Malavella. I don't know what we'd do without these folks. Yes, indeed. So enjoy this special gift. We call it Sunday Symposium. And if you want to come to a future one, just sign up for our email list over at theminimalists.com. We'll let you know when the next one is. Appreciate you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Cheers. Hey, y'all. My name's Joshua. And welcome to the final Sunday Symposium of the year. You know, I've, I've taken this time to read to you for a little bit about, well, some other people's work, some different perspectives. And today I'm going to read some stuff about stuff. I've got an uh, essay here from Mary Oliver. It's actually a, a poem that my good friend uh, Amanda Montel sent over to me. You probably remember Amanda from the, the first Sunday Symposium. And she sent me this poem. It's called Storage by Mary Oliver. When I moved from one house to another, there were many things I had no room for. What does one do? I rented a storage space and filled it. Years passed. Occasionally I went there and looked in, but nothing happened. Not a single twinge of the heart. As I grew older, the things I cared about grew fewer, but they were more important. So one day I decided to undo the lock and call the trash man. He took everything. I felt like that little donkey when his burden is finally lifted. Things. Burn them. Burn them. Make a beautiful fire. More room in your heart for love. For the trees. For the birds who own nothing. Which is the reason they can fly. I want to read a little bit from... Um, I haven't done this. Any of these essays I'm getting ready to read. Which some people have called poems. But I just wrote these essays... Ryan and I were finishing our last book, Love People Use Things, and I was writing some stuff that just wouldn't fit in the book, and I knew there was something here. And so it's the first time I've ever read these in front of a, a crowd. I wrote them a couple years ago. This first one's called Subtraction. We have too much. Too much stuff. Too much stress too many obligations yet we don't have enough not enough time not enough money not enough energy looks like we've stockpiled the wrong things and that's why we don't have enough of the right things of course right and wrong are just moralizing constructs there are no right or wrong material possessions the reality is we have too many things that make us miserable. As a result, we lack composure, contentment, calmness. Soaking in suffering, we glimpse occasional moments of happiness, 
we attempt to reprise those moments by acquiring new possessions. We try to fix the misery by gathering objects that make us happy. We act as if it's an inventory problem, as if that Instagrammable couch or that area rug will spark joy, as if that indoor planter or that vertical bookcase will complete us, as if that new shirt or those skinny jeans will make us anew. Subtract the wrong things, add the right things. That's the key, right? Sure. That's the key to anxiety, restlessness, and dissatisfaction. We cannot consume our way out of discontent. Well, we can, but only for a fleeting moment. It's not unlike a heroin addict's high. We can purchase pleasure, but in doing so, we also purchase future pain. An addict is never fixed after getting his fix. For after that spark of pleasure, misery always awaits. There are no exceptions. Pleasure and misery are two sides of the same coin. We'll never have all the right things because there are no right things. That's the lie we've been sold by advertisers and by confused influencers who don't know any better. Yes, some objects may enhance our lives, but only after we subtract the attachment that gets in the way. Peace cannot be packaged and placed on a conveyor belt. It is buried beneath the hoard we've added to our lives. The path to misery is cobbled with addition. The path of peace is uncovered with subtraction. I know some of you come here for advice, and this is an essay about that, called The Advice Epidemic. The urge to convince others is overwhelming. On the surface, it appears virtuous to help, to instruct, to coach, to guide, to motivate. Giving advice gives the impression of nobility, as if we have an obligation to ameliorate the plight of the world, to assist people headed the wrong way, to point them in the right direction. We are all middlemen in the middle of a self-help epidemic. Just look at social media. Overnight experts espousing advice. You should wake up early. You shouldn't eat that. You should embrace change. You shouldn't get anxious. You should change your habits. You shouldn't wear socks with sandals. I guess they're kind of right about that one. But really, there is no should. There never was. And without that sandcastle of shoulds, all advice begins to crumble in the wind. Each time we advise someone, it may feel like it's arising from a place of love, but it's actually the ego saying, I know what's best for you. The implication of which is disconcerting. I am right, 
you are wrong. And if you subordinate yourself to me, then I will fix you. How is this loving? There is no bigger ego than that of the helper. The helpful man simply cannot help himself. He feels obligated to tear an eagle from the sky to save it from falling, to drag a dolphin to shore, to rescue it from drowning. This is the opposite of helpful. I know because I've done it a thousand times. And for that, I'm sorry. A thousand apologies. My first inclination is to delete it all. Every exhortation, recommendation, suggestion, and opinion, everything from the past four decades. But we cannot start over by erasing the past. We can only move forward in the everlasting now. Perhaps I developed an allergy to advice because propagating it only feeds the ego. Now, the ego is not a bad thing. Just like fire is not good or bad. It can warm you. It can burn you. The desire to help isn't good or bad either. It appears for myriad reasons, all of which belong to the ego. And fortifying the ego is a surefire way to decrease the peace. To advise is to put oneself on a pedestal, a plinth upon which no sincere person rests. It necessitates we look down on others, which is an abhorrent position for any human. I realize I'm up on a stage right now. It's kind of weird. <laughs> Sorry about that. Advice? No. I don't want to help you. I don't want to not help you either. I want to support you. I want to love you. Love requires speaking the truth and remaining neutral as to whether it helps anyone. If it helps, that's fine. If not, that's fine too. The reception is up to the recipient. The truth is exposed through honest observation, through seeking and awareness, through an examination of obstacles and a deeper understanding of the way things are. To be clear, none of this is a recommendation. I don't think you should do anything. I'm not arguing my point in this missive nor am I urging you to comprehend my, quote, message. I don't hope to convince you of anything. The moment we try to convince someone, we've lost the plot. To convince, to influence, to prove oneself, these are all ribs lining the same umbrella. The truth does not require persuasion, coaxing or coercion. It is the truth, whether you're convinced or not. I would say the same thing about love. To convince someone is to unlove them, to persuade them, to coerce them, to coax them to my point of view. That's a recipe for unloving. 
Finally, I've got a little one-page essay here. It's about letting go. That's what we're talking about today. Letting go does not require a trip to Goodwill or a purchase from the container store. You ever tried that? I'm going to let go. Spent $400 in the container store. <laughs> Letting go is not something you do. It is something you stop doing. You stop pretending everything is precious. You stop clinging to toxic relationships. You stop acting like busy is a good thing. You stop posturing as if achievements make you you. You stop thinking new habits will solve the problem. You stop trying to fix everything. You stop turning to breaking news for information. You stop mistaking that information for understanding. You stop polishing the facade of success. You stop chasing happiness. No matter the fixation, be it possessions, people, or prosperity, attachment is always suffering. Always. When you let go of attachments, you pick up freedom, peace, equanimity. But if you hold on, you will get dragged. Every little thing you think that you need, every little thing what is up man it's so good to see y'all this is it means a lot that y'all show up um this is awesome how many how many have been here since like the first symposium i'm just curious yes how many of you this is your first sunday symposium Wow, that's yeah. about half of you. Holy moly. Awesome. Wow. Well, so we've been doing this every month, and we're trying to figure out how to do this next year. We, we do these the final Sunday of each month. The final Sunday of next month is Christmas, and so we decided not to make everyone come in on, on Christmas Day. I couldn't talk those two into it, actually. <laughs> I got all those gifts to open, man. <laughs> All the tie clips. He goes out to the uh, the driveway. There's a Lexus with a bow on top of it. <laughs> Mariah, how the hell are we paying for this? <laughs> Actually, you are. But uh, so we're going to figure out what we're going to do next year. You'll be the, the first to know about it. There's a little card on the back of your seats. If you are not on our email list already, we'll let you know. Uh, about the uh, the next Sunday symposium, what the iterations will be, what venues, etc. We're looking forward to to next year, but I'm looking most forward to right now. We have an opportunity to spend this time together to talk about letting go and and talking about a few other things. Ryan, you were on a hike yesterday. Yeah, when you were talking about the um, 
you know, if you if you're clinging too tightly, you're just going to be dragged by whatever you're holding on to. And quite literally, we were on a hike with uh, Beulah. Um, she's the one who like does. That's why our studio looks so beautiful. Like Beulah helped us design all that. Um, her husband Alex, and then their little kid Gabriel, and he's like one and a half, and he's holding on to the dog that has like this vest with a handle on it. And it's quite literally like dragging him and he doesn't know what to do. He's just like, he's, he's scared to hang on, but he's like even more scared to let go. <laughs> so, um, so anyways, I'm going to forward that to uh, Gabriel so he could uh, read that essay. <laughs> so we've been taking that opportunity to, to do some of these seekers readings we're calling that um, from other people's work. Right. And so um, a few the very first one we did, Anthony DeMello, we talked about happiness and and with respect to um, our own misery. Uh, last time we did something from Alan Watts, which was a different sort of perspective. I wanted to tie it back into the sort of spiritual practice of materialism in a way, because I think that's what we do without even realizing it. When I said that in the essay that. Letting go does not require a trip to the Goodwill or Container Store. It's the same thing that I would say about spirituality. It doesn't require, you don't have to be somewhere in order to have a transcendent experience, right? Too often we try to do things in a legalistic manner. If I just organize my things the right way, then I'll be happy. If I just own the right things, then I'll be happy. On the podcast recently... It hasn't come out yet, but we talked about the layer cake of consumerism. And I think that first layer has to do a lot with material possessions. We try to buy them because we don't have access to them. We crave them because we can't afford it. And we think that as soon as we can afford it or we buy it, it's going to have some sort of completing effect on us. That's what consumerism is with respect to material stuff, traditional consumerism. But... Consumerism is so much more than that because we go from there and then we go into success consumerism. Uh, if I just make the right achievements, get the right job title, attend the right meetings, if I'm part of the right clubs, if I'm in this particular group, then I'm successful. And so we try to climb the success ladder of, we try to consume success. There's relationship consumerism. If I could just get more people in my life or the right people in my life, then I'll be happy, right? And we treat it like a transaction. That's the opposite of loving. And then, of course, we have spiritual consumerism. And we think if we do the right rituals and the right order, the right sequence, the right ingredients of spirituality, then I will transcend all of this. And I think what we're here to talk about today is, I think it's a lot more about letting go of those things than trying to perfect those things. Do you have any insights on that, T.K. Coleman? I love the idea of materialism or consumerism in all of its forms as spiritual practice. I like to use that term not because these things are good or healthy, but because a spiritual practice is anything which, if you persist in it for a long enough time, transforms who you are. And it's a very healthy way of looking at things because sometimes we do things that are unhealthy with the attitude of we can flip the switch on and off whenever we want. You know, I'll sell my soul to get by this week. I'll become a undignified yes man for about a month until I can get free 
and then I can live the way I really want to live. But if you do those kinds of things for a long enough time, they change who you are. And by the time you're ready to maybe move on and acquire that freedom that you sought, you're such a self-compromised version of yourself that you don't even know how to recognize the freedom when it shows up, that you don't even know how to enjoy the freedom when you finally have access to it. And so it's very important that we be cautious with self-compromising practices. And, you know, with the whole idea of stuff, the most dangerous thing about consumerism is that it causes us to overlook the true nature of wealth. Like wealth isn't stuff. Wealth, wealth represents the quality of experience that you're willing to give up the stuff to have, right? So $50 isn't wealth. It's the haircut that you're willing to give $50 up for, right? Now, somebody in here is like, where can you get a haircut for $50? Well, <laughs> there, there are advantages to this. So you can't do it for half. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cut you half for $25. But, but, but the point is, like, that's not what wealth is, right? And when we practice this consumeristic approach to life, we start to overlook why we're after those things, and we start to miss out on the inner forms of wealth. Like when I think about money from an economic standpoint, money is just a symbolic representation of creative power. Money represents that I have the ability to add value to someone else's life in a way that causes them to give me something that is of value. And money is just a symbol that represents that. And if you, if you turn the symbol into the thing, then it disempowers you because you start to believe things like it takes money to make money. There's so many people who believe that. No, it actually doesn't. What it takes is value creation to make money. And no matter how much money you do or don't have, you always have the capacity to add value to people's lives, whether it's singing, helping them reframe an experience or something that you can do, some skill that you can develop to solve a problem for them. Even in the absence of money, you have the ability to add value to people's lives. And recognizing that is what true wealth is and consumerism redirects our attention away from that. It takes us away from being creators to being people who exist in this state of powerless neediness, you know? And that's a very dangerous thing. It's a self-negating thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I feel like um, Josh and I have been doing this work for so long because there is a scarcity thing that is, that's happening. And it's, there, are, there is actual scarcity. I don't, I don't want to undermine that. But I feel like um, a lot of it is this false sense of scarcity and with um, the things that we talk about and the, the, the journey that we've been on that we talk about, I think what we're doing is like kind of helping people see like maybe you do have what you need. Maybe and, you have it enough. Right. And when, and when people feel like they have enough, that's when they can start to look outwardly. Now, I don't think people have to feel like they have enough to look outwardly, but it certainly creates less friction to where people can get into that, that uh, contribution mode. You know, I was thinking the other day about... Um, like really, really rich people in the world, uh, you know, uh, Bezos and Musk, you know, just think of any like billionaire, trillionaire, whatever, multi, multi-millionaire. You could say Kanye West a few months ago, but not now. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> and I started like listing these people in my head and I'm like, if you take away all their money, do they still have the friends that they have now? Ooh. Like, do or, they? Or, or. Oh, here's something else. If you take away all of their power, do they actually gain more freedom? Right. And that's the thing, you know, whatever you think of Kanye West, this is not a, a discussion about him. But like the one thing I noticed 
with respect to him, when all of his money was essentially taken away, he's no longer a billionaire, he picked up a particular kind of freedom. And there's a great essay in the New York Times a few years ago called Power, No Thanks, I'm Good. And it posits that power and freedom aren't opposites. They are on the same continuum. And in the essay, the person makes this argument that the most powerful person in the world, probably the U.S. president, whoever it was at the time, is likely the least free person in the world in many respects. Because they have to be wherever they have to be all the time. They have to answer to everyone, even the people who have subordinated themselves to them. They are now answering to that person. And so gaining money, power, needing those things especially. Nothing wrong with money, right? Nothing wrong with personal power either, right? Just like there's nothing wrong with material possessions. But as soon as we start needing those things, what is that? That is attachment. If I needed everyone to show up here today in order to be happy, that's a recipe for misery because someone's not going to show up. There's an empty seat out there somewhere. Someone couldn't get a babysitter. They got into an accident on the way here, flat tire, whatever it is. And now all of a sudden, I'm allowing my happiness, my satisfaction, my contentment to be contingent upon the perception or the expectations or the standards of others. By the way, that's different from indifference. That's non-attachment, right? Non-attachment says, if you can't make it, you can't be there, there for me. We're still cool. Indifference is, when you show up, I don't care. Yeah. Right? No, I, and so I can be grateful. In fact, one might even argue that if I accept things as they are, I have a greater capacity for gratitude because I don't need it now. So it's all bonus. Ryan and TK both had near-death experiences in car accidents in the last decade. TK's was earlier this year. Ryan's was back in 2014. And the thing that became so apparent in those moments is, oh, this is all bonus time. And it allows you to appreciate it so much more because you have something that you very well could not have had. But of course, that's true for any of us. There was a one in 400 trillion chance that that one little sperm made it to your, the egg that was in your mom and now they had, we had you and you're here. One in 400 trillion, what a, oh, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> but you made it. And so here we are. I want to talk, touch on one more thing about contribution you were talking about and value creation because those two are linked hand in hand, right? Contribution, you, when you hear us talk about contributing beyond yourself in a meaningful way, you know, we do these events. We often, the three of us lose money on these events or if we're lucky, if you all donate enough money, we break even because we pay for the venue, we pay for the staff, we pay for our staff to, to be here. But we don't do it just for money. If someone showed up with a, a bag of a million dollars, I'm fine with that. I'm not allergic to money either. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> but it's not the reason we do what we do. It's also disingenuous to pretend that money is not, has no value whatsoever to us, right? Because the metaphor I like to think of is money does not get to sit in the driver's seat of the car, but we can't pretend it's not a passenger in the vehicle.
Money is important. It's an important part of the passengers that get us from here to here. It allows us to pay the bills, to, to pay for mortgages and rent, et cetera, et cetera. But when we do everything that we do for money, it actually gets in the way of value creation, of adding value to other people. My daughter's here tonight, Ella. She just started a dog walking business. It's called Paul's. P-A-W-S, Pretty Awesome Walking Service. <laughs> and she charges five bucks to walk dogs. Uh, so if anyone has a dog with them today, she'll walk it around the block. Uh, well, probably not this block. Um, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> the thing that she's learned in a very short period of time is they give her money not because we like you, they can like her just fine, right? They pay her because she's adding value to their lives. Now I don't have to walk the dog, right? And so when we're talking about contributing beyond ourselves, it's not like I want to help other people, as I talked about there. There's nothing more dangerous than the helper. That was the whole point of that essay I was reading earlier. The person who is the helper, in the spirit of what I'm saying here, the person who wants to force their help onto you. You've had that family member before, right? with all the right answers, and they show up and uh, they're there to fix you, right? And I think it was Upton Sinclair who said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And so when we try to convince someone, what happens? We drag them to our point of view. No one is truly convinced. And when I was reading that, I said, I want to support you and I want to love you which are fundamentally the same thing. To support someone, I can't care as to whether or not it helps you. It doesn't mean, as TK alludes to, it doesn't mean being indifferent. Because if you're helped by our support, if we're a support beam that you lean on us for these events or for some wisdom that TK has, um, <laughs> Ryan and I didn't bring any. <laughs> then wonderful. But if I need to help you, if I need to change you, the spirit of that is not from a place of love. And so we want to love you and accept you for who you are. And by accepting you, if we do see some sort of radical change or tiny change in you, that's awesome. If there's no change at all and you're just who you are, that's awesome, too. Now, the other day, Josh told me, he says, you sound like a Brian McKnight song. <laughs> and I want to get you back, because right there, that sounded like a Brian McKnight moment. You were like, I just want to love you. <laughs> I just heard the music queuing up. Doo -doo 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 -doo. I just want to love you. So on our podcast, we have these things we call minimal maxims. these like little pithy sayings, right? And I'm convinced at this point that all of TK's minimal maxims for the podcast come from Tevin Campbell or Brian McKnight songs. That's a compliment, really. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, with, with the not caring thing, I've never liked the phrase, I don't care about the money. And when I am, you know, looking for a service provider, I hate when people try to win my trust with that. I don't care about money. I don't have any money to make. I mean, if you're fixing my car and you tell me you, you don't have any money to gain, well, then you don't have any money to lose. I want somebody working on my stuff who actually has something to gain by succeeding That's a great and point. who has something to lose by failing me, right? Where's the basis for accountability if we don't have that? But I don't want you to just care about the money. 
Because if you just care about the money, then you might be willing to compromise our relationship, compromise your integrity in order to maximize profits. And so I look at it as I care about the money, but I'm not willing to compromise my integrity in order to to acquire it. There are boundaries around what I am willing to do in order to procure financial resources. Yeah. Now, Josh, your metaphor is great about the money being in the car, not being in the driver's seat, especially when it comes to creations. So the best way to like kill a passion is to like force yourself and pressure yourself to make money from it. Like I was talking to someone who wanted to start a podcast and you know, we're talking about equipment and we're talking about, you know, scheduling and uh, editing and things like that. And then they're like, now, you know, the really important part, I want to talk about how to monetize my podcast. And I'm like, that is the, a horrible place to start. Because <laughs> the honest truth is, is again, like money's in the, in the vehicle, but when you put it in the driver's seat, um, it's just, it's just not a very good driver. It's going to probably run off the road. You know, it's had a few DUIs, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, we even say drunkenly spin, right? right? And yeah. so like there are all these metaphors for being intoxicated, inebriated because of the pursuit of money. Yeah. It's not the pursuit of money is bad or evil. When it becomes the primary or sole mm-hmm. pursuit, then... We, we sort of start to lose the humanity, right? Yeah, it gets a um, I, was, I was at a store the other day with a friend of mine, and she's like, I, I really like how you always like address people by, you figure out what their name is and say hi to them, and it's like, well, yes, because there are kind of two options here, right? I can just, well, I'm here in the store for an actual transaction, but this short relationship that I have with the cashier or whatever doesn't need to be a transactional relationship. There can be humanity here as well, because you're not just giving them money. There's an experience there, even if it's 30 seconds, right? There is an experience of a smile, a kind gesture, a hug. I was in a store the other day and hugged the clerk there, and they're like, what's going on, right? I mean, I didn't force the hug onto them. It was consensual. Hey, speaking of, I was in BevMo Thanksgiving, getting some ginger beer. And as I'm walking out, there's this guy, he's an older guy, he's getting out of his truck, and I'm just in a good mood. I'm like, happy Thanksgiving to you, sir. And he looks at me and he literally does this. (laughs) And then he keeps walking. And I was like, he wasn't ready for that kind of love. He wasn't ready. He thought I was going to walk up on him and be like, hey, give me your... (laughs) He wasn't ready. So sometimes you might shock people with your love. I'll tell you what, though, like L.A. particularly is like this city of service. And like I go way out of my way. Just valet driver, uh, postal worker. Um, I mean, Mariah and I, we go on these like kind of late night, like 10 o'clock walks. And the USPS driver is like still delivering mail sometimes. And I'm like, just mail mostly. Right, exactly. But, you know, I, I like, you know, we'll stop and, you know, we're like, hey, thank you so much for doing this. Like, it's 10 o'clock at night. Like, I can't believe you're still out here delivering mail. And without you, like, the mail system doesn't work. Everyone kind of has their part. And uh, it, it's a really good way of opening people up and, like, really showing them that what they do does matter. Um, but, you know, I want to get back to the creation piece of it for a second because one thing I wanted to say is, like, Again, there's nothing wrong with making money from your creations. But when you find a way to add value to people's lives, they will find a way to support you in any way that they can. And the opposite is almost never true. 
Yeah. I, I've seen podcasts start, and the episode one is brought to you by insert, you know, whatever. Me undies. Yeah, Casper mattress. <laughs> um, and on that first podcast, they've like launched all of their merch. So you can buy merch because you must be a big fan of this podcast. It's like, no, this is episode one. Like, I don't even know you. Why the hell am I going to buy a t-shirt from you or underwear or a mattress? Like, I, I don't get it. And so it becomes part of the advertisement clutter, uh, which is one of the greatest causes of discontent and political strife and um, the disagreements that we're having now has mostly to do with advertiser clutter. We talk about cancel culture all the time. There's no such thing as cancel culture. It's all advertiser culture. People get canceled because advertisers say, hey, I need something really bland and vanilla. I'm not willing to piss anyone off at all because I want to sell Tide Pods to everyone, right? And so in order to sell Tide Pods to everyone, I can't have my ads running on something that is even remotely controversial. And so you can't have that person on your channel anymore, ABC, CBS, Netflix, Hulu, whomever, because we need to sell the people who are watching these shows stuff, stuff they probably don't need, stuff that probably won't make their lives any better, uh, stuff that we need to make them feel inadequate in order to feel like there's some sort of void that we can fill with our solution. You said it, man. Let's open up for some questions, Advertisements suck. Amen. Malabama's around here somewhere with a microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, Malabama. Hi, everybody. Would like to start us off with the first question from the audience. Anybody have anything burning they're dying to ask? If it's okay, burning, good. you might want to get it checked. <laughs> yeah, it was burning. They probably got pills for, for that. Hello. Hi. Good to see you again. Yeah, um, good to be seen. My question is, what brought you to L.A., and how do you uh, sustain minimalism here? Like, not just personal clutter, mental clutter, financial clutter. So that's my... There's a lot of clutter going on here in L.A. Yeah. What was your name? Stacy. Stacy. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Is this your first time out? No. Oh, okay. Were you one of the original? Yes. Awesome. That is so cool. I'm telling you, like, the people that have been showing up week after week, like, that's why we're going to find a way to keep doing this. It really is a special thing. Yeah. So thanks so much, Stacy. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So why did we move out to L.A.? Well, um, Melbourne dragged me out here. <laughs> and, I'm and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Um, now, I, I think Los Angeles is, Rob Bell said it best. He's like, if you want to tell stories, move to Los Angeles, because that's where people go to tell stories. And so um, Josh and I were in Missoula, Montana for the longest time. Uh, we met both of our wives there. I mean, incredi incredibly grateful for that place. Um, but we did need to um, do something to kind of get our story out more. In Los Angeles, it turns out, like when you're doing documentaries, when you're doing podcasting, LA is a really convenient place to be to, to kind of get into that stuff. So yeah, Josh was like, hey man, we should go to LA. And I'm like, okay, twist my arm. Like it's not that, you know, wasn't that difficult to drag me out here. But it's funny because as soon as we moved out here, I felt like for the last, see, we moved out here in what, 2017? Yeah. So we had been doing this for about seven years. And I felt like the seven years leading up to moving out here had like conditioned me to live in Los Angeles. Because if I would have moved out here in 25 years old, at 25 years old, like it would have eaten me alive. Like I, 
I'd have lasted like six months and then I'd have been like, you know, in a gutter somewhere, naked, covered in glitter. Like, <laughs> LA would have just like had its way with me. That might not be a failure. That might not be a failure. <laughs> oh man, but it, it is interesting because like it, it, the, when I first moved here, yeah, like the first thing I noticed was um, all the G-Wagons and Teslas and... It's all consumption. Oh too. my God, it's crazy. Tempting, right? Yeah, it really, it really, it really is attention grabbing. Um, it, it's not attempting, it wasn't uh, tempting to me so much because again, of those seven years of conditioning, like I can appreciate art. Like I see a nice, um, like Range Rover or even, you know, a Tesla or a G-Wagon. Like I can look at that and be like, oh, that's really, really nice. But because we have done so much work to like be okay with what's going on in here, um, I can recognize like, oh, like I could, I could have this in here with or without material possessions and without all those things. And um, I'll, I'll tell you the, the, the one difficulty I had with Los Angeles is so like we've been here like six months. Um, it's the 405. Yeah, right. The four, oh the size God, of the 405. Yeah, the 101. Yeah. Oh my God, we're so LA. <laughs> Talking about the highways. No, so we were out here like six months and Josh is like, so how are you liking it? And I'm like, I really love Los Angeles, but I don't think, I don't think Los Angeles really loves me. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, dude, like I go to like Blue Bottle or Chipotle or wherever. And I'm like, hey, how's it? You know, hey, I'm Ryan Nicodemus. Like, you know, hey, how's it going? How's your day going? And they just kind of look at me like, what do you want, dude? And I'm like, no, like, how's it going? They're like, what, like, what do you like? They're looking at me like they're they're questioning my intent. Uh, you know, is this guy on drugs? Like they're just looking at me like you know, like I got seven heads. And so um, I very quickly was like, oh, okay, uh, I'll just have like you know a coffee, please, thank you. And Josh is like, well, hey man, you, you, I would recommend you do one of two things: you either turn it down, or you turn it up. And I was like, ah, okay, I'm gonna try turning it up. <laughs> And it was really uncomfortable at first, um, and it still doesn't work all the time, but uh, I have a lot more success with it where um, I kind of think of it as like me bringing Missoula to Los Angeles. Like that's my context with it. Midwest. Yeah, <laughs> Midwest, yeah. And um, so I'll go up like, hey, hey, how's it going? How's your day going? Like, what can I get you? I'm like, no, seriously, like, how's your day going? Like, what do you need, man? Like, I'll, I'll, take, a, I'll take a black coffee, but like, seriously, like, how are people treating you today? And, like, once I turned it up, I started to, like, push through that wall that people in Los Angeles kind of have because they deal with so many people and all different kinds. But it really, like, has totally made me um, just enjoy my time in L.A. that much, that much more. I spent my first 37 years very committed to winter. <laughs> and you know when Josh commits to something. <laughs> what does that mean? I just lived in Dayton, Ohio, and it's really cold in the winter. You're from Chicago. You know about this. Yeah. I wasn't committed. Also Midwest. <laughs> That's why I'm here. And, and then we went to Montana, which Montana will trick you. So you are driving. Here's what happened. 2012, Ryan and I finished our first book tour. We're driving from Vancouver back to Dayton, Ohio. And I know we have to get through Montana, and it's this 10-hour drive through one state, and then you have North Dakota after that. And we're in his Toyota Corolla, and just driving back, and we stop to get tacos in this little town called Missoula. 
and uh, we we grab some coffee and we hit the road and it's July and it is corporations pay millions of dollars to try to affect whatever the hell is going on in Missoula in July. As we're driving down I-90, there are six college students skinny dipping on the side of the highway. Two guys, four girls. There's a waterfall on the side of the highway and there's like this hot spring that's going on there. It's the first time in my life I've ever done a triple take because I look over and I look over again and then a bald eagle flies overhead. <laughs> this is a true story. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I think when the eagle flew in, that's when I was like, it was solidified. I'm like, do we have to come back here and check this place out? But, but the one thing about Missoula too is like the people in Missoula, if you go up to a stranger and you're like, hey, how's it going? Like, they give you the benefit of the doubt. Like, you're cool until you prove me otherwise. Where, um, even in the Midwest, like, you know, in, in Dayton, Ohio, you go up to someone like, hey, how's it going? They're like, all right, dude, like, what do you want? Like, they're questioning your intent. The only thing that would have made it more sort of Americana is if there was a Amer American flag in the talons of the eagle. <laughs> that didn't happen. But... Ryan looked at me, he's like, we gotta come back out here. Because along the way, we were looking, like, where's the next city we're gonna go? Because we've been in Dayton for over 30 years. Where's the next place we're gonna go to write our next book, which was called Everything That Remains? And we were every, every place, we were like, oh, let's move to Austin, let's move to Los Angeles, let's move to San Francisco, let's move to random places, Fargo, North Dakota, just wherever. And then we said, okay, let's come back out to Montana to write the next book. I get there October 3rd. <laughs> And it's full blizzard. <laughs> full blizzard. I'm talking several feet of snow. Can't see my headlights and the car in front of me as we're moving out there. And it was great to write a book. But it was negative 26 degrees every morning when I wake up. And Ryan and I had to set an alarm because we had to keep the, the cabin warm with a fire. Otherwise, we'd freeze to death. And um, I really liked that feel of Missoula, but I was really done with winter. And so we came out here, yes, to tell stories, but also to see some sun. I came out here for these guys, plain and simple. I, I just wanted to be around these guys as much as possible and, and do the kind of stuff that we're doing together and, and have fun with the adventure. So I'll, I'll spend most of my time uh, addressing the second part of your question. Like, how do you do the minimalism thing in a place like L.A.? So... Three things, concisely. One, I remember hearing Denzel Washington in an interview. Someone asked him, how do you cope with the fact that you live in godless Hollywood? And he says, what is that? Godless Hollywood. He goes, Hollywood is a geographical location. Speaking of godless Hollywood is like speaking of godless Nebraska or godless Chicago. But we have this habit of applying labels to certain places and that way we can stereotype everyone who lives in that geographical location as being a particular way. And I think it's very important that when we talk about places like L.A., that we resist the tendency to just lump everybody in the same category. There are a lot of people who've come out to L.A. for a lot of different reasons. Some of them only think about themselves. Some of them love the hell out of their families. Some of them are really ambitious. Some of them will disappoint you with their lack of ambition. Some of them are rich. Some of them are broke. Some of them are God-filled. Some of them are godless. Some of them are careless about the topic of God altogether. 
And we've just got to be open-minded with how we engage people in places and not allow, our, not, not allow ourselves to define a place by the label we attach to the geography, but by each individual that we encounter. Second thing I'll say, I have a little philosophy that's helped me out a lot in life. It's called mind your own business. And <laughs> mind your own business is something that we typically think about when it comes to scandal, right? Here's a guy that's married. I'm out to eat one day and I see him at a restaurant with somebody that's not his wife. Mind your own business, TK, right? But we can also apply mind your own business to success. Here's a guy that owns three Teslas. He doesn't really need three Teslas. Mind your own business, TK. It's not your money. It's not your life. It's not your job to go around policing how well other people are at living their lives in accordance with your priorities. And I don't say that as a moralist. I don't say that as something that I think you're going to go to hell for doing. I say that as an advocate for inner peace, that it is very difficult to get on with your life and be happy with who you are and enjoy your existence if you're constantly in everyone else's business in terms of how good of a job they are and are not doing at the thing that you want to do. To me, the only life worth living is the kind of lifestyle that can be lived in an environment where the majority of people are not like me. How powerful, how meaningful can a lifestyle be if the only way you can implement it is if everybody around you is just like you? I want the kind of philosophy of life that says, all of you can disagree with me, you can live in the completely opposite manner, and I can still show up and be my authentic self, unthreatened by you. That's power to be. The last thing I'll say, when it comes to living in geographical locations, I talked about this on a recent episode of The Minimalist. I had this friend who, back in the blockbuster video days, he rent a movie, right? And you, you get like uh, the movie for three days for $3 or something like that. And after he watched the movie, he would watch it again every day to get his money's worth. <laughs> and I said, okay, do you do this with the bad movies too? And he says, yeah. I says, why? He goes, well, I paid $3. I got it for three days, so I got to get my money's worth. And I'm like, okay, but in an effort to save money, you're actually wasting your own time and wasting your own happiness by subjecting yourself to experiences that you say make you miserable, right? And I think that's another factor to keep in mind when thinking about places. You can say, well, I'm gonna go live over there because you can get so many square feet for only so many dollars and it don't cost anything. Yeah, but if your soul feels dead inside when you're in that place, if you're not around people that you enjoy being around or doing work that you enjoy doing, well then are you really saving money? You might be saving money, but at the expense of your soul. There are other ways to sell your soul besides making money. You can sell your soul in an effort to save money. And so minimalism isn't about saving money or making money. It isn't about having more stuff or getting rid of stuff. It's about making sure that I don't sell my soul in the way that I establish my relationship to stuff. T.K. Coleman. So that's how we do it in L.A. Yeah, that's right. Alabama, how about over here? And then I see someone way in the back. There we are. Blue shirt. One sec. She's bringing a microphone over to you, okay? I have short legs. I'm sorry. It takes me a minute. Holly, what's your name? Hi, I'm Robin. And I'm uh, born and raised in L.A. So we're, awesome. we, we're not quite as connected to all the consumerism that some people say we are. But and anyway, I, I was cringing when you were reading the poem where the woman said she had the junk people come and take everything out of the 
storage unit. Uh-huh. Because for me, part of living simply and the simplicity movement, which we used to call it 25 years ago, it's also about that the consumerism isn't just to be wasteful. Yes. And that things like Trash Nothing and other groups, it's that we don't throw things away, things that other people can use. And I find it offensive when people talk about just, there's one thing to throw it away and there's one thing to share it with others. And that, that has also caused me to have a couple arguments with some friends where I wanted their plastic wear that they were going to throw into the garbage, where I literally took it from the garbage and I said, I'll take it home and wash it. And they were one friend of mine said, no, 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 it's my garbage. I can do what I want. I said, what the fuck? You know, I, I, I said, I'm going to wash it. And then sometimes we use it, my family, or I give it to a shelter. Or It's just this idea of the wastefulness. And it does have to do with the earth. Yeah, and my- it does have to do with this consumerist stuff. Yeah. My, my so wife is also, my wife is a, a literalist. And um, I think the poem's a metaphor. (laughs) And and when she says burn your stuff, she doesn't mean it literally, right? She means that these things are in the way. So whatever we need to do, it's just not as sexy for her to write, donate. And if you can't donate it, try to sell it on eBay. And if you can't sell it on eBay, have you considered Poshmark? Uh, And also, this is something that may not apply in every situation, but if I may, it could apply in these particular conditions here. And so, and now I'm getting really boring because I'm trying to be so precise that I cover everything and hedge my bets. I no longer become the kind of person that's worth listening to when I write. (laughs) So the line is things. Burn them, burn them, because you're making more room in your heart, right? But I was talking about the line about the, the, the yes. truck yeah. coming and taking it off. Yeah, and yeah. It they can't hear you. There's no microphone. Um, dumpster. This idea of it was the dumpster line. You know, yes. These guys are going to come, take your stuff, take it to the dumpster. Yes. It wasn't the bird. What was the principle you, you mentioned a few moments ago, oh, TK? Don't make me do this, man. You should just quote me instead of making me say it. It's my own business. <laughs> Rule number two. <laughs> and, and so the, the point is that this is a metaphor. A metaphor for what? We don't mean literal room in our hearts, right? It's making room for what's truly important. And however you want to get rid of your things, I'm all for it. You know, when I talk about how to let go of possessions, the way that I do it is I try to sell it. If I can't sell it in seven days, I lower the price. If it doesn't sell in 30 days then I will donate it. If the person, if I can't donate the thing, then I'll do my best to recycle it. And you go through that entire process, occasionally there'll still be things that are trash. I'm not gonna hold on to trash, and so I will let that go and it will end up in a landfill, but when I follow that process, that allows me to reappropriate the things, repurpose the things, so they do find a home. If I'm not getting value from something, you're absolutely right. It doesn't mean that someone else won't get value from it. And I think that's important to recognize. There are plenty of things that I own that if I gave it to you, you'd be like, what is this clutter? I don't want this, right? And so when she says, burn the things, trash the things, 
It's a metaphor for making room for what's going on in our hearts. Our hearts are very cluttered, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, psychological clutter, all this internal clutter is going on inside us. And by dealing with what's going on around us, we're finally able to free up what's going on inside. Yeah. I would posit, too, that, you know, all of the physical things that you see in this, in this theater, I mean, eventually will become trash. Now, one of the nice things about minimalism is the less you consume, the less waste you produce. But once you take that item off the shelf, the damage is already done. Mm. And it, it does matter how you get rid of certain, like batteries, you know, you want to recycle them properly. You know, you want to give things to uh, donation stores if you can to be reused and things like that. But it doesn't matter how you're getting rid of your things. The damage to the planet, I would, I would say, has, has mostly been done already. Um, but yeah, what, the poem was, was, was definitely a metaphor. What was your name, Robin? Yeah. So, Robin, um, I'm going to take a left turn here. I really like what you talked about. Uh, you're like, you know, I'm from L.A. We're not really tied to that consumption stuff. And it's funny because before I moved out to L.A., I had this um, stereotype, these assumptions in my mind of like, people are like, you know, so L.A., you know. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I, I've run into a lot of people who are like, you know, so L.A., and I ask them, hey, where are you from? And they're never from Los Angeles. Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm from, yeah, from Michigan? <laughs> it's like, oh, like you came out to live that stereotype. So, um, Robin, you're a great example of that because you seem really chill and laid back and you don't, you don't seem like you're L.A. But you, oh, are, you are totally L.A., though. <laughs> Thank oh, you for your... For your uh, can I speak yeah, to Robin? Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, 1980s John Carpenter sci-fi film called They Live about an uh, alien race that kind of takes over humanity, but they disguise themselves as humans, so the humans don't know that they're slaves because they live among us. They live. Well, there's this guy who discovers this, like, uh, box of shades because this conspiracy group had met together and they left the box behind. He puts on a pair of shades, and it gives him the ability to see reality as it really is. And so when he's looking around, he just sees billboards with advertisements on them, but he puts on his shades and he sees a message like consume, obey, takes it off. It's a model, a basketball player, consume, obey. And so he's totally taking the red pill. He's like, man, I've got to wake people up. There's like something really going on. And so he goes to his best friend and he tells him, he's like, look, man, I found this pair of glasses that allows you to see reality like it really is. And his friend's like, mm, that's not for me. He's like, look, you're going to change your mind when you just put the glasses on. And his friend's like, I'm good. He's like, just put them on. I'm good. Just put them on. Look, man, I'm not putting on the shades. And then he tries to force the shades on his friend. His friend knocks the shades off his hand, and then he punches him in the face. And then for the next 10 minutes, you witness one of the most ridiculous moments in cinematic history where these two idiots are fighting each other. For 10 minutes, going back and forth, put on the shades. I ain't putting on those shades. Put on the shades. And by the end of the ordeal, both guys are bloody and blue, bruised. The guy didn't put on the shades. And the guy who owned the shades just walks off angry at his friend and frustrated with himself for not being successful. I say this to you because I think you have the right to advocate for the point of view that you are passionate about. We talked earlier about advice that word etymologically just means my point of view, advise, my view, my perspective. It's totally okay to have a point of view. I'm like you. You're like me in that regards. You can't not have a point of view. That's part of what it means to be a human being. And if you see something that makes you angry, you have the right to speak to that. 
If you see a way that you want to influence another person to see the world, you have the right to do that. And if someone's being wasteful and you care about the earth, totally cool to be like, hey, can we find a way to recycle that, refurbish that, and not just discard that? But the real question is, what do you do when someone refuses to put on the shades that will allow them to see reality as you see it? Even if the way you see it is something you're convinced is true, can you love them enough to say, all right, I respect your freedom. I respect your dignity. I think you might be uninformed. I really wish you knew what I knew, but I respect your right to follow your own journey and come into the truths you need to know in your own way and in your own time. Just like I was allowed that freedom before I forgot how easy it was to know what I now know. Way in the back, Alabama. TK, that was like the perfect example of what Josh was talking about, the, the helper who's dangerous. I'm going to help you. I'm going to beat my help into you, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me help you. Howdy, what's your name? Hi, my name's Nicole, and this is my third symposium. So awesome. <laughs> thank you for That's doing it. this. Um, so as we approach the end of the year, it's pretty inevitable to look back and think about what we accomplished, frustrations, or even things that we wish we would have done differently. So how can you um, let go of some of that guilt and shame and beating ourselves up, comparing you know, ourselves to what we wanted to accomplish throughout the year? And, and this is what I was talking about in the essay. We are so addicted to sort of prescriptions, right? How do I let go? And letting go is not something you do, right? If I were to hand you this microphone right now, and I said, how do you let go of it? What would you do? I have no idea. Oh, the microphone, I'll just give it to someone else. Oh, so you, you, okay. That's one way to do it. That's actually great, because that's not what I was thinking, right? And that's my point, is I, I can't give you seven steps to let go of the microphone. The only way to let go of the microphone, you know, intuitively, I'll give it to someone else. I just drop it. Well, whatever it is, right? If I, you found out that microphone in your hand was a snake, <laughs> would you ask me, how do I let this go? No. No, of course not. You would drop it immediately. And the reason you would drop it is because you have all the information you need to stop clinging at that moment. You thought it was one thing, but now it's another thing. Isn't that the same thing with the the regrets of the last year, the triumphs of the last year as well. We, we want to let those go also. It's not just about letting go of the things that are unpleasant to us, but by letting go of the things that are even pleasant to us allows us more room for the things that continue to be pleasant for us, right? And so you don't need to know how to let go. As soon as you see the thing that you want to let go of, you just have to stop clinging to it. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I personally struggle with like beating myself up over past mistakes and regrets. And, uh, you know, I, I think I probably, I think I do it more than probably others do, or, or maybe not. Maybe that's just in my head, but you know, the other that's night, the ego. Yeah. I'm better at regretting. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, I mean, that it's funny to say that, but like I was in, in bed, um, couldn't sleep. This is like a week ago. And I start to 
always like go over all the embarrassing moments of my life and all the regrets. I don't know why I do this when I can't sleep because it just helps me not sleep more, but like that's where my brain goes. Same here. Yeah. So yeah, I can totally relate to this. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, why do I beat myself up? Like I am like, these are all things that I've apologized for, that I've been forgiven for, that I moved past. Like, why am I bringing myself back to this, this state of guilt? And I, I said to myself, well, you must, you must like it. And I'm like, what? That's what? No, there's no way I like it. Like, that's so stupid. And I was like, well, dude, you, you come here quite often. <laughs> you come back for a reason. And uh, what I realized is that for me, uh, my guilt, uh, it, it is sanctimonious. Like, I look at it as a virtue, and I think it has something to do with when I was a kid being raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. Like they teach you basically the more guilty you feel, the more sorry that you are, the more in favor of God you are. So it was, it was huge for me. And um, I'll tell you, like now when I start to feel guilty about stuff, I have to ask myself, like, why am I putting myself through this? Because ultimately, the best way to stop feeling guilty is, well, to stop doing things that make you feel guilty. <laughs> yeah. I forget the name of it, but um, there's a horror film where... <laughs> it's Freddy versus Jason. Child's Play 3. No, no, that's not it. Where, where the, the, the guy is, is, is being haunted by this ghost... And uh, it's, it's freaking him out. And he's changed houses. He's tried to address this problem in every way possible. And one day he decides to see a therapist about it. And the therapist says, have you ever stopped to ask the ghost why it's haunting you? And it's like, wait a minute. Okay, if this ghost wanted to kill me, he would have already done so. He's followed me from house to house. I probably can't escape him. I've tried everything else, so instead of trying to get rid of the ghost, maybe I should confront the ghost and say, what the hell do you want from me? And see what's there. I think the best way to let something go is to figure out what aspects of that thing are worth holding on to. And when you figure that out, you're able to take what's useful from it, own it and embrace it, and then let go of what remains because you're not letting go of something that you need. If something's bothering you from your past, you feel like you made a mistake, you feel like you had a failure, you're not supposed to just push that away. You're not supposed to just suppress that. You're not supposed to just make yourself forget about it or pretend like it didn't happen. You're supposed to wrestle with that. You're supposed to sort that out. You're supposed to be present with that and say, what the hell are you trying to teach me, ghost? You're haunting me for a reason. I've tried everything I can to get rid of you. What are you trying to teach me? And we may find something, some kernel of truth about ourselves and about what we value and about what we care about or what we need to own up to from those failures. And when you can take that and own it and say, okay, then the ghost will stop haunting you and it'll let you go and you won't have to let it go. So I would say, don't try to push past those failures and those regrets, visit them, sit with them and let those regrets be your teacher because there's some aspect of that that you need to hold on to because it's going to serve you well in the future that you want to create. Yeah. I've been working really hard to like make friends with my guilt, with my anxiety, with my stress. 
Um, yeah, because I'm, I'm so good at just like shoving it in a corner. But yeah, sitting with it is it's a much more yeah, powerful approach for sure. We got a question up here in the in the front row. Also in the front row is our good friend, the very talented filmmaker Jordan No More. Let's give him a round of applause. Holly, what's your name? Hi, Rachel. Hey, Rachel. I was going to test TK on that, but. <laughs> uh, so, Rachel gave, gave me the, the walking book as my gift to moving to California. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so big shout out. Thank you, Rachel. I hope it's valuable to you. Um, so I wrote out my statement slash question um, so I wouldn't screw it up. And then I showed my new friend, and he's like, well, that's way too long. So I, 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 I did edits. So, <laughs> so I'm going to try to tone it down. Um, I first wanted to thank you for hosting these events and for all you do to add value to my life and, and others. Uh, I apparently lived under a rock for uh, 47 years because I only discovered you two years ago. So it's, it's very bad. Um, my question, um, the new year is upon us. I will not ask you a resolution question. Um, what guidance would you give about what we can do starting today to relook at what we are currently doing when it comes to minimalism to improve our processes without becoming compulsive. I'm gonna take a sharp right turn. You don't need to improve anything. It's one of the greatest lies that you've been told is that you need to improve yourself, you need to improve your things, you need to improve your house, you need to improve your situation. Okay, sure. There are times where we fall down into a crater. We go into debt because we've made some poor decisions. I know I've certainly made a lot of poor decisions and got into a lot of debt. And so improving in that sense doesn't actually mean improving yourself. It means getting out of the situation in which you've already put yourself in, right? And so advertisers do a really good job of teaching you that you need to improve yourself, that you are incomplete that you are less than, that you are not your best self, right? Maybe you're not your best self, but it's only be because of the other essay I was reading earlier about subtraction. Our best self gets covered up by all of these distractions, accoutrements, material possessions, expectations, toxic relationships, things that make us lesser than our ideal self. And so it's not about doing anything or acquiring anything to become that best self. It's about subtracting everything that's cluttering our lives in the first place. You know, I'm, I'm with that. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go into my new year with the assumption that improving my life ought to be my number one priority. Instead, I, w I would focus on how am I already kicking ass? You know, what am I already doing well? It's, it's so interesting because with a lot of my high school students, the hardest thing I'll ever ask them to do is to make a list of like 10 things they've done in the past year that they're proud of. And everyone gets stuck at one. We're so bad at thinking about things that we do well, and we're just so amazing at critiquing ourselves and evaluating ourselves. But here's the interesting thing. You can't get better unless you build on a foundation of what's already worth working with, 
right? How can you get anywhere useful in life unless you say, okay, I found a starting point upon which to build, and this starting point is worth working with. So in what way are you already worth working with? In what way have you already built a foundation that's worth building on? Like, I would look back on my year and say, what did I do right? What am I proud of? In what way am I kicking ass? What's something that I did that was amazing that I like to keep doing? And, and I also add a little rule to it. One of my, uh, I had a, a boss named Asogi when I used to work at Papado Seafood Kitchen. He had a no stories policy. So whenever you needed something, no stories. You just tell them what you need. So you can't go, hey, Asogi, like uh, the man at table 66, he really didn't like his shrimp and I need it. No stories. What do you need? I need a side of shrimp for table 66. That's it. I would say, do a no stories policy what you did well. So instead of saying like, even though my life was really crappy, I did manage to show up for my kids. Even though I was tired all the time, I did manage to be nice towards other people. Even though I didn't do it as much as I wanted to, I did manage to work on my projects. Nope, I worked on my projects. I showed up for my kids, treated my friends with respect. I took care of my health. I did this right, I did this right. And I think that'll orient you towards the world in a way that just makes it easier to keep doing, to keep building on, what's already working. Josh, I love what you tweet every January 1st. Um, it's, uh, it's day one or one day. You decide. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are things that maybe we need to improve on health-wise or um, whatever it is financially. Maybe we got to pay off some debt. But, you know, if we can get clear on the what, um, I'm sorry, on the, on the why, what we're trying to work towards, the what kind of unfolds. But, you know, you don't need January 1st to start, though. I mean, it is nice to have start points. Don't get me wrong. But you can start today. Um, By the way, you can only start today. You can't start tomorrow because when tomorrow comes around, it will be today. There is only now. And it's the lie we tell ourselves we're going to start some day as though that's a day of the week right and then someday arrives and we put it off and ryan has this uh, great joke that he says he's going to make his twitter bio uh, i'll put that on my to-do list tomorrow <laughs> and that's quite often what we do especially with new year's resolutions or it doesn't have to be new year's any other time i'll begin that on the first of the month or i'll begin it next week I often know someone isn't serious about making some sort of change in their life. And as this isn't a judgment, I don't care what changes you make. If you don't want to make it, please don't make it. But a serious person takes now as the opportunity for the change. A serious person, and it's, by the way, it's not good or bad to be serious, but a serious person recognizes that now is literally the only time I can make a change. And there'll be future nows. But even the past, when you think about the past, when do you think about it? Now. Right now. Yeah. So the past exists, but it exists in the now. And yes, tomorrow will exist, but in the now. And so any change you want to make, it's always going to happen right now. And you know what? I think about that resolution word, like it. It partially comes from resolve, right? So we think about resolutions in a forward-looking way, like what do I want to add to my life? What are my New Year's resolutions? But it also means completion, right? Closing out, finalizing. Yeah. So one little reverse New Year's resolution practice could be like, hey, what do I want to stop trying to do? What area of my life do I just want to accept? 
You know, what are some things I just want to call complete and be done with them? I love one exercise. This has to do with priorities, but it was Einstein who talked about if you take the list of 25 things you want to accomplish next year, you really, the things you really want to accomplish, right? And then you cross off the bottom 24 <laughs> and make those a hell no. Because they're so enticing that they'll distract you from the one thing that you really is the top. We use this word priorities. It didn't have a plural until the 20th century. Priority means the first thing. And so if you have 25 the first things, you don't have any first thing. We got a question. I'm going to sit in Alabama. She's working out today. Right behind you here. Hi, I'm Linda. Thank you for having these symposiums. This is my third one. I brought a friend, and she's kind of shy. Um, <laughs> Dragged out, kicking and screaming. <laughs> she was, and I'm kind of curious, too. What kind of cars do you drive in L.A., and Why? Mm. Well, to be a minimalist, you have to have a Lamborghini, so... Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I, yeah, Mariah and I, we have a 2016 RAV4. It's a Toyota. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. I'm afraid the answers aren't going to be very sexy right, for exactly. you. <laughs> yeah. And the reason they're not sexy is it's it's rather practical. Like, I own a Toyota as well. Not sponsored Sonata. by... Oh, there you go. Um, and... Really? <laughs> what I do wrong? <laughs> the sexy answer is like, I don't own a car and I walk everywhere. You have an electric car. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I live in Ojai, so I have to have a car. Um, but even when I lived here, I, I owned a car and I walked most of the time. But for practical reasons, minimalism isn't about eschewing all possessions, right? We aren't ascetics. We're not monks. I don't want to get rid of the things that add value to my life. Although here's what I'll tell you. I will often remove something from my life that I perceive that adds value just to see whether or not it really does add value. And so it's really a helpful exercise to get rid of home internet, to get rid of your TV, to get rid of your favorite shirt, to get rid of those shoes that you really like but you never wear. Those are what I call aspirational purchases, by the way. It's like, ah, I'll, I'll be the type of person who wears those orange pumps. <laughs> and we do that. We get rid of those things temporarily to see, okay, is my life fine without it? And sometimes my life is even better without it, right? My life is improved by subtracting the thing that was actually getting in the way. Now, that said... I own stuff. I'm not against stuff. I don't renounce stuff either. And so if I had a problem, I know the, the woman earlier had a problem with, uh, Robin had a problem with Mary's poem. The only problem I have with the poem there is it feels like a renunciation of things. And I don't want to renounce things. Because as soon as you renounce something, you're forever tethering yourself to it. And so I'm not saying that stuff is bad, that owning a certain number of things is the right number, because there is no right or wrong here. The question is, what serves me and what serves you? And the tricky part is what serves you right now may not serve you a year from now. And so it's this constant quest. I wish there was a list. I wish I could just pick up this piece of paper and say, guess what? We figured it out, the 100 things you should own. They're all for sale in the lobby. 
God, man, we make a lot of money. Um, but the money isn't first. And so here we are. And we've recognized that the things that we own end up owning us if we have to have them or if we refuse to have them. That's another way of being owned by your things. You know, Thank it's, you. it's, yeah, it's interesting. So um, I'm assuming this is your friend's like first time ever hearing anything from the minimalist. Is that? No, this is my second time. Oh, okay. Just, I just, I just liked what you said about people being in LA. We're from LA and we sometimes have to feel like we have to be more LA because the somebody, a transplant that came here is more LA than us. <laughs> that is so fascinating. <laughs> We're not yeah, it, yeah. It, it hits home. That's wild. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not like from LA, I am from LA. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Malabama, let's find a few more questions here. You got... Let's see this gentleman right here in the hat. Oh, okay. Sorry. Hold on, put your hands back up. Let me see. Glasses okay. and hat. Let's yeah. get you in here. Hey, could you guys talk a little bit more about the connection that you guys have between spirituality and and self in, self improvement or and minimalism? You sure. talked about Demello and you talked about Watts, and and so I'm I'm curious about how you tie those things together. And my first experience with you guys was literally this morning listening to your podcast because I knew I was coming here. Oh wow! And um and I'm I'm extremely impressed. And TK, you are amazing. Thanks. Amen. Yeah. What's your name, brother? Aaron? Yeah. All right. So um, this is what I love about the three of us is we have different religious beliefs, different political beliefs. All three of us voted differently in the last election. <gasps> How could you? Yeah, and you're still friends. Oh, my God. You didn't shun the other person for thinking uh, that some other person would save them other than the person you wanted to save you. Um <laughs> And so uh, we have different religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs. We have different personalities um, and different preferences, for sure. Ryan is the biggest extrovert I know, um, and I spend 90% of my time alone. And um, But that's what makes this beautiful, the fact that we have different beliefs. But we're not trying to convince each other of those religious, spiritual, political, material beliefs, right? If anything, we're trying to understand that other person's point of view. And so um, I know that doesn't answer your question directly with respect to, to spiritualism. I, I know all three of us, we, we certainly think differently, but I see it almost like a Venn diagram. And those pl places that overlap in the middle are really beautiful because yes, we can agree, but we can also add nuance to each other's understanding. But the places that don't overlap at all are also really beautiful because my former self would have been real judgmental of like, oh my gosh, TK's Catholic. Like, I, I grew up Catholic. And so I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Like that belief system is not right because I am right. And my point of view is right. But TK and Ryan both teach me how to get really curious about that. Oh, tell me more about that, because it's not merely black and white, binary. This is the way that is true, and this is the way that is untrue. But what wisdom do you pull out of that tradition? 
And maybe I too, like Alan Watts, can pull wisdom out of Hinduism and Catholicism and, and uh, Zen Buddhism. I too can extract some wisdom from any of those points of view. So I mentioned earlier how I was raised one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'll tell you, when I um, stopped practicing that Christian religion, I really felt lost. And I was really scared to put my belief into anything else. And the mistake I made when I left is I held a lot of resentment for uh, the organization. And where I'm at now, though, is... Well, Josh kind of mentioned it about being curious. And I can look at any kind of spiritual belief and instead of judging it and saying, hey, here's what's wrong with it, I can now, like, I try to see what's right with it. Mm. So when it comes to, like, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, like, there's some really awesome Jehovah's Witnesses. There's awesome Mormons. There's awesome Christians, awesome Buddhists. And that is really what I look for. Like, when it comes to spirituality, the thing that I have... um, come to to grasp is that, you know, the world is the way you see it. And people get to choose what lens they look at the world through. And you know what, if if someone's uh, a Catholic, and it's really like helping them give the most of themselves to the world, because they're using that lens, then I will encourage and support that person being Catholic. So as far as my own like spiritual beliefs, um, you know, I've been looking at a, lo- a lot of different things. I, you know, I wouldn't sit here and plant my flag in like I am this and put a label on it. Um, but I am certainly curious and I do see the benefits to all different types of spiritual beliefs. But, you know, the one thing I do know is that, um, you know, the, the, regardless of what religion you are, like if, if, if my actions are aligning with my values, if they're aligning with the, the, the beliefs I do have, like I'm going to live a meaningful life. And that's kind of, you know, what I focus on. But I would love to hear you talk about how Catholicism, like kind of the lens that you look, how you look at the, the, the world through that lens and how it really helps you be the amazing freaking human being that you are to get. <laughs> well, there's this movie about elves. <laughs> I'm just joking at time. I'm just joking. But, but I'm going to get, I'm going to get ready for the next one. I'm going to get a, Elf reference that'll bring it all together, but uh, you know, so okay, so if if I need to go Catholic with this, I think about. Um, <laughs> Saint, we don't need to do anything. Uh, Saint Athanasius, he says, God became man so that man might become God. Mm-hmm. I've talked about this before that the the word for salvation in Greek is theosis, which means God becoming. Another term that is used in our early church history is deification or the process of becoming divinized, the process of becoming God. And so the idea there is that um, there are no ordinary human beings, um, that we are all the image and likeness of God, but this is something that we are not aware of. And, you know, I I think about there is a man who's said to have been the wisest to have ever lived, King Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes and the Bible. He says, I've observed a great tragedy under the sun. There are slaves riding around on horseback and there are princes walking about on foot as if they were slaves. And the idea there is that we are all royalty, that we are all princes and princesses, but we walk about on foot as if we are slaves because we don't know who we are. And all of our problems 
come back to that lack of knowledge of who we really are and what we're really capable of. And that's really the idea there, right? That That's really the journey. And, and we seek it in things. We seek it in stuff. We seek it in riches. We seek it in popularity. But it's not that those things can't make us feel good. It's just that the world isn't large enough to contain what we are. We're too big for this world. We're too much for this world. We're made for something more. And, and life is about waking up to that. Life is about creating space for that, which is why it all comes back to the stuff behind the stuff, the space, you know? Um, I don't know, man. I mean, that's, that's, that's all I got to say. I you know, yeah. TK, I was, uh, we were driving down here this morning and um, we, my wife and my daughter were in the car and I was listening to some Eckhart Tolle and um, he was talking about God. And the way he talks about God is not the anthropophore, uh, and he was not—he doesn't anthropomorphize God. He's not a bearded man in the sky, right? But like, it's the underpinnings, the fabric of everything, right? And Ella, being a rather astute nine-year-old, says, "Don't you think some Christians would get really mad at this?" I said, "Yeah, I think some would." I said, "Certainly not all of them, though." And she's like, "Who wouldn't?" I said, "I don't think TK is going to get mad at at." Um, and Eckhart totally talking about about God in in this way, about you know the the essence of each of us, as you just talked about. You know, we who's the saint that you quoted a moment ago? Athanasius. And what was the quote? God became man so that man might become God. And the irony of that is there are some fundamentalists who would call you heretical for even saying that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you said I was Catholic. That should go without saying. <laughs> <laughs> we got some more questions here. Right over here, Alabama. While they're passing that mic down, the... Wonderful sounds you're hearing, especially recording here today, is from our good friend, Professor Sean, up in the sound booth. Yeah. Also, Nikki from their team here at Dynasty Typewriter. Let's give the whole team a down Dynasty Typewriter round of applause. Howdy, what's your name? Laura. Hey, Laura. Hi, nice to meet you. You as well. So I have a question about family relationships. Okay, broken family relationships that maybe our a priority is to fix in this coming new year. And relationships are two-way streets. So I'm thinking I have a 16-year-old son, 16 and a half, who lives with his dad. And we're kind of estranged, but um, I put out breadcrumbs, you know. The dad or the son are, are estranged? Um, the son. Okay. Yeah, I have a good relationship with the dad. So, you know, I keep throwing out like, you know, crumbs, but they don't really get picked up. And I want to give him the freedom to pick up this relationship and he's ready. But if we're dealing with a, a mother or a sister or these kind of uncomfortable family situations, what, are you, what is your advice? He, I don't have any advice, but I, I will tell oh. you that. Um, tips for relationships. I have no tips for you. I have no how-tos. I have nothing to prescribe. I have no hope for you. What about strategies? Tools. <laughs> nope. Nope. None of those either. So um, I do have some insights and some support. There we go. 
let's lean on the, these insights here. Um, first off, he may never be ready. I think we have to understand that first. Because something happened that severed the relationship at some point in time. And I'm not fault-finding here. That actually does no good whatsoever, right? Um, fault-finding. Now, you can see where the, the relationship bifurcated, but it probably bifurcated way before you thought it did. And people often hang on to a relationship. You know, there's examples of dead marriages, right? That, well, we're still together. We've been together for 30 years, but the relationship's been dead for 20 or 25 or 29. And so we continue to hold on. Well, why is that? I just a moment ago, I said, well, I don't have any hope for you. Part of it has to do with hope. Hope is one of the most dangerous things that we have because it says we have some expectation about some future outcome. And now I'm tethering my peace, my salvation, my happiness to whatever other thing is I'm hoping for. Right? That's one way to look at hope. Now there's present moment hope, the feeling of hopefulness that occurs right now that has nothing to do with some future outcome. I'm all for that kind of hope. Right? But for the, the kind of hope that is really just goal setting but with a prettier name, that, that can become a prison for you. And the reason I say he may never be ready is you have to accept that first. There may be no hope in the relationship. Now, why do I say that? It sounds really demoralizing, right? Like, why the hell is he telling her this? Because as soon as we can accept that, what is that? Acceptance is how we love. To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them, manipulate them, persuade them, coerce them to your point of view, right? Well, what is that? That is acceptance. Things are... What the thing that TK would say is like, you know, it's whatever God's will is, maybe. Like someone from his perspective. I would make it a little more Brian with nice on than that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he would say it with a much uh, deeper voice than that. But um, Eckhart Tolle would say, it is as it is. Right. That's what acceptance is right now. Your relationship is as it is right now. And if you need it to be any other way, then it won't be that other way. But if you make room for it to be another way, what you're basically saying is you've dropped some breadcrumbs. I get that. Maybe the metaphor I would think of is you've opened the door for him, right? And he may not be ready for it right now, but you can keep that door open and you can let him know that that door is open. Because anything else, dragging him through the door, <laughs> kicking and screaming, will not get you the result that you want. Yeah, the only thing I might add to that, that, that was beautiful, like just leaving that door open. Um, and, you know, hope, hope's a tool, and you got to be careful how you use it. But ultimately, in a situation, you know, like that, um, any situation really, like the more compassion you can show someone, uh -huh. the, more, the more you show your support, and that will, um, th that will leave the door open. Yeah. 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 But he ultimately has to walk through it. Absolutely. In a relationship, they have to meet you halfway, right? Yeah, 100%. Okay. 100%, yeah. You mentioned that you have left out breadcrumbs and he's not really picking up on it. Would you mind painting a picture for me? I like to know, 
what does I've laid out breadcrumbs look like for you? And what does he's not picking up on it look like for him? Um, Well, we live about 10 minutes away on on the same street. So maybe it'll be like a really hot day, right? And I have a pool at my place. And I'll be like, hey, if you you want to come over for a swim, I can pick you up. You know, thanks, you know. Or, um, hey... uh, you know, if you want to come over for dinner, I'll, I'll make you something really yummy. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, you, know, you want to go to a thing, like a movie, right? No, you know, I don't want to go see a movie. So just, you know, I keep trying different things. Now, that said, you know, he did come to Portland with me, so it's not totally closed off. And we, I think we had a nice time. But when I said, hey, would you like to go to Portland again next summer? Oh, no, you know, I got, ex- you know, all these excuses. And I was like, okay, cool. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep the distance. I'm okay because um, I noticed that when we do make plans, I get a lot of anxiety around it. And I realized that I'm just re-traumatizing myself. So I'm like, you know, maybe I should just uh, give space to it. Can, can I just butt in real quick? Because you're making me think about, the timing of this. He's 16, right? Yeah. So as teenagers, we are better at letting go than any other times in our lives. Because there's a necessary attachment you have when you're a baby. You actually need your parents, right? But somewhere around puberty, we start going through this process of detaching. And sometimes it's rather destructive and we don't realize what we're doing. Sometimes it's something simple. We're thumbing our nose at our parents like, oh, that my parents really want me to go to school for math, but I went there for philosophy. Ha ha, mom and dad, take that. <laughs> Other times with me, it's like you accidentally set the house on fire. And, and so, literally. Um, but what, what are we doing there? We're showing how independent we are. I no longer need you. I'm no longer attached to you. And as a mother, I understand that is the most difficult thing, right? And that's why I hear all the emotion in your voice, because there's a part of us who want the other person's attachment to us. I remember I was dating someone once, and I explained to her, like, yeah, I really like this, but I don't need this relationship. She goes, I know you don't. I wish you just needed a little bit, right? (laughs) And by not needing it, though, it allowed me to show up as the best version of me. Because I don't need to be here with this event right now. There's a million other things I could be doing. I get to do this. And so the next time you get to do something with your son, not needing that attachment will open it up for flourishing. Yes. I love that. Made me think about my relationship with my godson, man. Like, there was just something going on where I just was not cool enough for this dude. And when, whenever I'd be like, what's up, man? He'd be like, or I'd be like, give me a pound, man. And he'd be like, what's that? Like, oh, man, I guess. You know, and, and, and I, I didn't actually get close to him until I just, like, made up my mind. Like, I do not care about this guy. And so I, like, go sit next to him. And he'd say something to me, I'd be like, Psh, I don't care about that. And then we just started to get really close. So some of that really does work. <laughs> but you, you mentioned um, th- th- these communications. Are they usually like text, phone calls? I'm just curious. Uh, sometimes yeah. I'll text them. And if, 
I don't hear back from them after, uh, uh, sometimes it'll be two hours or sometimes four hours. And if it's, you know, if, it, if it's plans I'm trying to make, I will call them. Yeah. Um, but it's, I'd both, both. Okay. All right. So a couple of things. Um, one of the things I noticed about the, the pattern and the breadcrumbs is that they all seem to be ask, like pretty, pretty big right. ask, yeah. like, hey, uh, do you want to hang out with me that's doing true. this particular thing? And it seems like he's kind of made it clear that for the most part, that's not something that he's interested in doing. I would recommend a couple of things. Um, when making ask like that, I would perhaps make them so that no response is necessary. But if he wants to be involved, the door is open, right? So, hey, going to pick up some food. If you want anything, let me know. No pressure. Done, right? A couple of weeks later, like, hey, FYI, know it's hot outside. If you ever want to come by, use the pool. Ain't even got to let me know. No pressure, right? That way, if he doesn't reply, it's not a scandal for you or for him. And it's just letting him know that your resources are available. Doing that every once in a while, you know, kind of lets him know, hey, we're good on my end, right? And that's a cool thing to do as long as it's not overdone. But one thing I would propose is maybe seeking to connect over something that doesn't require him to take a field trip with you. How's it going? Mm-hmm. You know, hey, how you doing? Like maybe just show interest in him. Like you don't have to go anywhere with me. We don't have to go get a cup of coffee. We don't have to go see a, a movie, anything like that. Just curious, how's it going? And give him the freedom to be as quiet and non-detailed about that as he wants to be. It's you just putting the feeler out there. You're not forcing him. If he wants to talk, he'll talk. If he doesn't want to talk, that's okay too. But I think it's important to establish a pattern of communication that says connecting with me doesn't always have to involve taking a field trip. Mm-hmm. It could just involve something small, something low cost, like saying hello. I, I, I think that might change the energy around it. But like Josh said, you know, continue to be patient. Let him know that you're there. Whatever you do, don't get mad at him for being who he is. Mm-hmm. Don't get to a point where you're like, you know what? I've offered you breakfast 50 times. Forget it, man. I'm done. Because sometimes we need someone to just persist without being overbearing and letting us know, like, hey, you can ignore me as much as you need, man. I still got your back. You know, the the context that you're holding with that of I'm here for you when you need it, like, I feel as a parent, like, that's the best you can do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rob Bell, uh, uh, he's he's a... I just look up to him as, as being a father. Um, I don't have any kids, but you know, when Mariah and I finally have some kids, like I hope I can hold this context, which, which is uh, his number one goal is to enjoy his kids. So whenever he's, you know, through, through thick or thin, he's holding that context of like, I just want to enjoy our relationship and enjoy you as my child. And I think by doing that, regardless of the situation, if that is coming through, I mean, that's, it's the best way you can kind of keep holding that that door open. Um, I love like the low barrier, like just hey, you know, whatever. The pool's open when you need it. But the one thing, the one thing um, I might try it if you know. And this isn't advice; it's just an observation. <laughs> um, ha- have you ever tried asking him? Like, because clearly oh, you want yes. you want to provide something for him. Yeah. So I mean, just just asking him like. Is there anything that you need? Oh, yeah. And if he says no, then be like, then that's great. Like, if I was having trouble buying Josh a Christmas present right now, December 25th is coming up. Hey, Josh, what do you need for Christmas? Nothing. Oh, my God, what a relief. 
I think we got time for one more. Thank you for your question. Thank, Thank you yeah, so much. A lot. What do we think? Of, we'll make this Alabama's choice. Uh, let me get somebody in the back here. Okay. Hi, my, my name is Dave. Uh, first time at the symposium, second time seeing you guys. Thank you so much for everything you've done. Thanks, Dave. Um, I'm a, you know, I, I do a lot of reading. I um, have been reading the book uh, 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. He talks about, you know, the average human life we're expecting 4,000 weeks. And if you look back at the scale of human civilization, we've got maybe 1% that any one of us can experience of the time since Mesopotamia. And for me, that was a big relief. It kind of took the pressure off. I said, look, I don't need to totally put a dent in the world. I don't need to change everything, you know, and I just, you know, uh, it gave me some relief and relaxation in living my life. Um, And then the book goes on to talk about how you know, but part of the the enjoyment of life, part of the enjoyment of just being and existing is the solving of problems. And, um, you know, talking about the problem with minimalism, that, that itself has helped me solve a lot of issues. It's helped me focus on more things. But I'm kind of curious if any of you or all of you could shed some light on just any ways that you sort of figure out or find, you know, what problems are most most worth focusing on. You have to find the suffering. It could be suffering in your own life, the pain points of your own life. Kapil Gupta talks about everyone should go through a near-death experience every six months. (laughs) Because that's how we actually live. We don't realize that we have those 4,000 weeks, right? It feels so infinite. So I got plenty of time to do everything I want to do, right? But it is infinite in another way. Like right now, we were talking about the now, the moment. When we talk about eternity or something is eternal, it just means without time. And now is always without time, right? There is a time on the clock, but it's never precise to the now. It's an approximation of now. So what suffering do you see around you right now? And that's how the whole minimalist thing started, because it was some suffering in my life. My mother died, my marriage ended both in the same month, and I started looking around, questioning everything that had become my life's purpose, right? Being a middle manager at a telecom company and managing 150 retail stores, which is really ironic with the whole minimalism thing. Um, I realized that I was suffering and I, was also, I also wasn't alleviating the suffering of anyone else. And so if there is a meaning to life, it has something to do with finding that suffering and minimizing it. Unfortunately, we often do the opposite. We heap expectations on other people, which increases their suffering. We heap debt onto other people, which increases their suffering. We heap messages of discontent, of why you are not enough, increases the suffering. The food that we eat increases our suffering. Our sedentary lives increase our suffering. There's a lot of suffering out there, right? The suffering that I noticed in my own life in my 20s was consumerism. Buying things that I thought were going to make me happy. Attaching myself to a lifestyle 
that actually did the opposite. Made me severely discontented. And I suffered. But that suffering was a compass that pointed me in a direction of, of healing. And that's ultimately what we're up here trying to do now is support people in their healing, their relationships, their relationship with stuff, their relationship with other people, their relationship with themselves, their relationship with their values, relationship with the truth. If anything, if we could provide a little bit of healing, then I think we found our purpose. You know, for me, like, minimalism is this compass in a sea of consumerism. And we're all experiencing that sea a little bit differently. Um, I am eternally grateful that I get an opportunity to um, offer any type of healing to anyone. Um, the problems I care about most are my own, though, to be honest. I do care about your problems. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I, I much more care about my own problems. And the thing is that my problems are other people's problems as well. And where this whole journey started was with um, being lost in that sea of consumerism. And Josh and I were able to uh, gain a little bit of insight and, and start to use this compass of minimalism. And what we've done is we have shown other people how to use that compass. So for me, I'm always looking at my own, my own suffering. Like I feel like this last 12 years, it's really just been like 12 years of therapy for Ryan Nicodemus. And I'm really grateful that you all have been along for the journey. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's very much, uh, uh, it comes from within in the sense of, um, you know, I'm always talking to some version of my former self or um, maybe a version of myself that, you know, really needs some sort of perspective or guidance on something. So that's really where I, where I come from with anything that, that I add uh, to the minimalist. It's, it's always from that perspective. In a world filled with problems, where do we start? Which ones do we begin cleaning up with? Little, little activity. How many of you, maybe when you were a kid, ever had your parents do something like uh, make you take out the garbage? You don't want to do it, but they made you do it. Or pick another chore, do the dishes, or something like that. Yeah. How many of you in such a moment ever said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not just going to take out my garbage. I'm going to go to every house on my block. <laughs> I'm going to go to every apartment in my complex and I'm going to take out their garbage too. Nobody did that. Don't feel guilty about it. There's a rational explanation for why you did it. Such behavior is perfectly normal and predictable for anyone who operates from a sense of guilt or duty. The reason you were taking out the garbage is because an authority figure was making you do something that you didn't want to do. And whenever someone makes us do something that we don't want to do, what we're very good at doing is figuring out, well, how much of that do I need to do in order to not get in trouble? Then I do precisely that much and I stop. And it makes perfect sense because to do more means to do something that I neither have to do nor want to do. And that's the definition of a waste of time. So when someone makes you do something, when you do it out of duty, you figure out how much do I need to do to not get in trouble and then I quit. Let's do something different, though. How many of you have ever, maybe in high school, you're on the phone with that person you had a crush on, 
Or maybe you were playing a video game, watching TV or something like that, and your parents said, you got to come in here and do this responsible thing. And you're like, oh, come on. And you try to negotiate with them. Okay. Why do we do that? That's a pretty risky thing to do because this is someone that has the power to make your life really inconvenient if you tick them off. And yet you're pushing, you're negotiating, you're fighting for more TV time, more phone time, because that's how human beings predictably behave when they are doing something that they love. Even though they might get in trouble for it, even though they might inconvenience people, they fight for the right, the opportunity to do even more of it. There are possibilities born out of love that simply don't arise out of a sense of duty. We are not our best when we try to do things because we feel guilty. We are at our best when we do things because they make us burn inside. We do things because they light us up. That's when we're at our best. My favorite piece of advice on this, advice on this, <laughs> comes from the civil rights activist Howard Thurman who said, ask not, the, ask not yourself what the world needs, but rather what makes you come alive, for that is what the world needs, people who have come alive. One final story. I'm gonna tell this one for the last time because I'm tired of hearing myself tell it. But <laughs> Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's an astrophysicist, host of Star Talk Radio, the television show Cosmos, the director of the Hayden Planetarium, leading popularizer of astrophysics. He tells the story of how he had always been interested in physics and understanding those things. And his parents really invested in that. And when he got to high school, he was studying physics and he had a friend that was like a couple of years older than him that was a Rhodes Scholar. And this friend said to him, especially at this time, he says, Neil, I don't think your talents are what the world re needs right now, because as a black man with so many civil rights issues going on, we need you studying things like politics, something that can allow you to bring your intelligence directly to bear on the issues. And because this guy was a Rhodes Scholar, somebody that he looked up to, he kind of questioned himself. But after wrestling with it for a while, he decided, you know, I, I gotta be me, you know? Like I can't, I can't do anything else. This is what I love. And so he's stuck with physics. Sometime later, he's in grad school, and the department gets a call. It's someone from a news station who is receiving a lot of calls about some weird phenomena that's happening in the sky. And they want to know if someone from the department can explain what's happening. Neil deGrasse Tyson explains what's happening. The person on the other end says, I can't even fake that. I can't even summarize that. If we send someone to get you, can you come on television and explain to people on the air? He says, sure. They send someone to get him. He comes on TV and he explains what's going on. He doesn't say, hey, black people, everything's gonna be okay. He says, hey, world, this is what's happening and here's what it means, nothing to worry about. It's actually a very beautiful thing. And someone heard him on television and said, I really like the way he talks about science. There's just something different and interesting about him. And so they contacted him and asked him if he could go speak to some students over here. He went to that group. Someone was there, was like, I really like hearing him talk about science. And he got invited somewhere else to speak. Years later, Hundreds of speaking gigs later, he notices an interesting pattern. Black student after black student comes to him and says something like, Dr. Tyson, I wasn't really interested in science, but after I heard you talk about it and make it sound so interesting, I thought to myself, I wanna go into that and I'm an engineer today because of you. Dr. Tyson, 
I actually was interested in science, but I didn't like math and I thought it was too hard. But when I saw somebody who looked like me succeed at it, I thought to myself, okay, I can do this too. And it turns out that without even intending to have a direct impact on black communities, he had influenced many people from those communities to go into math, to go into the sciences, to go into engineering. Why? Simply by doing what makes him come alive. I think we significantly underestimate the impact that we have to change the world simply by showing up as our best self. I'm not going to give you the version of me that you think I ought to give because that will make me live a guilt-driven, duty-bound life. And all I'm going to do is what human beings always do. I'm going to figure out how much I need to do to not get in trouble. And then I'm going to stop. Instead, I'm going to offer you something better. I'm going to show up as the me that is alive when he gets there. I'm going to show up as the me that is on fire when he gets there. Because what I do when I get there is going to be the thing that I do when you're not around to judge me. It's the thing that makes me alive. Find the problems that make you come alive to solve them, and you will go further than you could possibly go if you're just doing things because they need to be done. Oh, I'm gonna work on cancer research. Uh Uh-oh, but there's domestic violence. You're gonna feel guilty about that too? Oh, okay, I'm gonna go work on that too. Ah, you know, there's human trafficking, that's a problem too. Global poverty, that's a problem too. If you focus on guilt, you'll never be free because the only guarantee you have in life is that when you die, you're gonna leave the majority of problems left unsolved. So which one should you focus on? The ones that make you say, it makes me alive to focus on them. That's when you have your best impact. Amen. We're gonna come back in about five minutes and dish out some hugs, take some photos and have some fun. Can you believe we get to do this? This is crazy. Oh my gosh. Um, I know there's some questions we didn't get to today. Obviously, people have questions. If you have questions for us, you can just message us on your preferred social media platform, at The Minimalists, and we get to as many of those as we can get to. We're going to continue the Sunday Symposium forward, so stay tuned in your email boxes. We'll let you know about the next event. I want to thank you before we wrap up, and um, I want to bring a special guest onto the stage real quick to send you off with a message of love. Can you welcome my nine-year-old daughter, Ella, to the stage? She would like to give you a little kind, loving, departing message. What do you want to say, Ella? Love people use things because the opposite never works. Thank you so much, y'all. We'll be back out in a minute. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it 